0: On May 9, 1920, General Edward Ritz Mickley and Colonel Marco Bezuccio marched down what is known as Kershkat Street in Kiev, Ukraine, and they were leading various divisions of both Poland and Ukrainian infantry. It was a parade to celebrate the recapture of Kiev from the Bolshevik Red Army by the Allied Forces of Poland and also what was known as the Ukrainian People's Republic, at least at that time. This victory came as part of the Kiev Offensive, it was a joint operation to capture territories that were controlled by Soviet forces. In exuberation of their achievement then, the people celebrated and they celebrated by having a parade. Such parades like this find their root in ancient Rome when military leaders would return after great triumphs and celebrate what had taken place in their conquest for the empire. Those victory parades are a tradition that have continued on even in this modern era. While the most well-known were those joint celebrations from World War I and World War II, even smaller countries and lesser-known conflicts celebrate their victory at times with a parade of celebration. Those include places like Estonia, who celebrated their Battle of Vanu, or even Finland in 1941 and their Vilperi Victory Parade. Today, victory parades overtake the streets of some major cities to celebrate significant triumphs of even sports teams. They've also taken the form to celebrate the inauguration of incoming presidents. And just recently, we had the opportunity to see kind of a victory parade combination, coronation, something that some people in their whole lives had never experienced when King Charles was crowned King of England. Throughout history, there are many grand entrances like these. Some are perhaps more important than others. No matter how significant each of those entrances have been, though, there are two that stand above the rest. The grandest of them all has yet to occur. We only know of it by reading Revelation's description of it, saying of Christ impending return. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true in righteousness, he judges and makes wars. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As grand as that entrance is, there is one that precedes it, one from the past that occurred long ago. Today, we commonly refer to it as Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of the Passover events and Jesus' final grand entrance into Jerusalem. As we come to our time of worshiping the Lord through the preaching of his word this morning, we look upon this event, the event that took place the week prior to Christ's resurrection. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 12. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, The Coming King, Responding to the Coronation of Christ. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, you can find today's text on page 845. As always, I would ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. You may be seated. This passage is unique because physically it not only serves as the grand entrance celebrating what's supposed to be Jesus' triumph over the political foes of Israel, but in one sense it serves as his coronation ceremony when they declare him King of Israel. It is here that we just saw that he is acknowledged as a king. And at this time, Jesus receives their worship, though what the Jews had hoped for was different than Jesus' intentions. We know this entrance in Jerusalem by its title, The Triumphal Entry. But recognizing that this is really but a foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate triumphal entry described in Revelation 19, as I read earlier, dear friend, a former professor of mine prefers the accurate title, the prophetic entry of the humble Messiah. And he prefers that title because that is what we see depicted here. Every grand entrance invokes a reaction. For some, they invite times of jubilation and celebration. For others, they may initiate joy at victory, but they may also bring about sadness at personal loss. Whatever it may be, whether it's personal or public, A grand entrance provokes a response, and the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem is no different. The prophetic entry of the humble Messiah is a special event, not so much for what it was, but perhaps for what it was not. As we examine this passage of scripture, we come to notice four distinct responses to Jesus' entrance we we'll find the first response in verses 12 through 15. And it is here that we have the scene of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, and it's set. We read, beginning in verse 12, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of the palm tree and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I want you to note first a response of inference. A response of inference. There are three feasts that call upon the Jews to come to Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of De- uh, Pentecost, and the one they're remembering now, the feast of Passover the historian Josephus reports that there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for this particular Passover he is also known for inflating numbers (laughs) so it's really hard to believe that there were that many people there but if there were even half as many as he listed that's an incredibly large group still by their presence and by their participation we know these then to be jews who faithfully practice their religious beliefs it's assumed then that they must be very knowledgeable of the word and the instruction of god they know enough to at least come here to obey they know enough also to be waiting for their conquering deliverer and by this point enough has taken place for them to infer that jesus was the christ And they're responding to Jesus at this point based on those inferences, based on those assumptions. By this point, Jesus is known in the region. The chief priests and the Pharisees assured that Jesus' status, for for lack of a better term, his status as a celebrity, at least regionally, they they assured that would take place in the previous chapter when they issued their arrest warning. Chapter 11 closes out, noting, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, Jesus, was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. It's like putting somebody on the most wanted list. If Jesus wasn't known before, he's certainly known now. Hearing of his arrival then, the large crowd goes out to meet him, the text says. Such a phrase seems to only offer a description of what is taking place, but it actually is a specific way to describe the official reception of a arriving or visiting dignitary. It'd be like the United States receiving the president or a leader from another nation. They go out to meet him, and in that case, that leader may be given a, a warm welcome. Maybe events are held in that leader's name and honor by the host. That seems to be how the Jews receive him here, as an incoming dignitary or an incoming head of state. They have long awaited for the one who would deliver them victoriously over their political enemies. And it seemed to them, by their inference, that Jesus was that promised deliverer. And so they greet him. They greet him with palm branches. Palm branches have been used at various feasts to symbolize resurrection and authority, perhaps pointing to Christ's ultimate triumph of authority. More recently, though, more recently in our text, palm branches were established as a symbol of national victory for the Jews, They were used to welcome Simon Maccabeus in some of his great triumphs when he returned to Jerusalem and they praised him with songs singing over him and using palm branches. They were also used by his brother Judas at the rededication of the temple. But palm branches were not only historically significant but they're futuristically significant as well. They're seen before Christ and his throne, used for praise and worship of him in Revelation chapter 7. And a scene that John describes for us, saying, And this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In this way, then, the palm branches are used by the Jews to declare their praise for Jesus. But accompanying their actions of praise are also their words of praise as they cry out in our text, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. They identify Jesus here as God's ordained Messiah and with palm branches and a declaration of him as king of Israel in verse 13. They acknowledge their expectations of victory. They do this by citing Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Seeing him as Messiah, they say, Hosanna, which from the psalm we just read signifies, we can say, save us. Or, or more accurately, it is cry to say, save us now. They'd expected Jesus to be their Redeemer at this moment. Notice that Jesus does something slightly unbelievable here in light of other things. He embraces their greeting. In John chapter 6, he had rejected any efforts or any advances to make him king. But here, he, he all of a sudden accepts it. And he accepts it by fulfilling a prophecy from Zech- Zechariah 9, same one we read in our scripture reading this morning. Matthew gives a little more detail for us, describing in Matthew 21 that Jesus gives instructions to the disciples to go into the next village and and find a donkey and next to it it's colt and retrieve them. And and once the disciples do this, then Jesus mounts the colt and he enters into Jerusalem. It was common for a conquering hero to ride into city in, in grandeur and in glory, but mounted on his war horse. That would seem to be more in line with the expectations of the people here who saw Christ as the one who would conquer Rome and deliver peace in that way. But Jesus uses a donkey here to subtly correct their expectations. Zechariah 9 presents a time of war and violence. It's the Lord's judgment, but it will eventually result in peace. But through authority, more like you would expect from somebody riding a war horse. One day, according to Revelation 19.11, Jesus will return riding on a war horse. But for now, he fulfills verse 9 of Zechariah by coming in on a donkey. That donkey, believe it or not, is still a very royal animal. It been used by both David and Solomon at their coronation ceremonies. But unlike the war horse, the donkey symbolized a king who was coming in humility and gentleness. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary, describes that this donkey is not like the ones that we breed today in the States, but rather it was much smaller, meaning that in order to mount it, Jesus had to get onto it and kind of bend his knees up. We see this even more because it's not even a full grown. he's He's using the colt. And so, this was a coming king coming in humility and gentleness. And though Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9 9, the people seem to have failed to remember verse 10 and any verse that actually comes after. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bowl shall, bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. These people were looking for a political king for their region, but the plan of God was a redeemer for the whole world. At this point, this is a joyous time in Jerusalem. They're there to celebrate the Passover, a time when, of the past when God had delivered his people. He had delivered them from Egypt. He had delivered them from death. And now, in one sense, they don't know it. They're celebrating more. They're thinking they're celebrating God's coming deliverance, but this time from the oppressive Romans. So there's great joy and great exuberance right now. I do think these are the same people later on calling for his crucifixion. That these same people calling for the ascension to Christ to a throne now are the same ones calling for his crucifixion later, just a few days later. That's a dramatic turnaround that's what we would expect, though. At this point, the people's expectations did not match God's promises. And based on their desires, the Jews are making inferences and assumptions about the coming Messiah. And they're responding to Jesus based on those inferences. This is a problem if we worship Christ as we want him to be, but rather than as he is. We will be disappointed. And we will reject him. I think that says something about man's heart when somebody is more disappointed that Christ did not fulfill his or her expectations and more disappointed at that than they are excited that Christ fulfilled God's revelation. The crowds here sadly respond in inference, worshiping Christ as they assume him to be rather than as he is. I want you to note second... A response of ignorance, a response of ignorance in verse 16, which states his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Those words are a stunning admission by John because he's confessing that he and the other disciples were indeed ignorant. They were ignorant of Christ's full impact at that time, despite the fact that Jesus had been very clear with them. The Gospel of Mark records a conversation between Jesus and the disciples in chapter 10. It says, And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, It's slightly baffling because at this point, they're already on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus explains what's going to occur. This is not a conversation that happened months ago and they just forgot about it. Quite literally, they're on their way to participate in the very events that Jesus is telling them will happen. And yet John admits, we really didn't understand these things until later. Jesus offers assurance later on in John, and he tells the disciples, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Certainly knowing that they would not remember everything that they'd been taught, God has already made an arrangement for them through the provision of the Holy Spirit. So when they lacked understanding, the Lord still gave them insight. It's a great picture of who our Lord is. As far as the disciples, by now we're not surprised by their ignorance. A common characteristic of their relationship with Christ seems to be ignorance. Throughout the Gospels, they seem to lack understanding. And and to be fair enough, most of us would probably have been just as inattentive as they were but there's a difference between the crowd's response of indifference and the disciples' response of ignorance. In that at least for the disciples, they at least had an understanding of who Jesus was and as he was. Matthew 16, Peter identifies him. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. They at least followed Christ for who he was. It was just that their response was incomplete because they were incomplete in their knowledge. We're not that different from the disciples. We're still ignorant of who Christ is to some degree. Through God's word and through God's spirit, we have some greater understanding perhaps than they did at that moment. But it's still incomplete. Like the disciples, we also fail to also understand how God's kingdom and his purposes are being served through our everyday lives today. Richard Phillips points out, indeed, much of the excitement that gains the attention of the world will be shown to be of little significance, while much unnoticed but faithful Christian worship and service will be seen in its glorious importance. He's right. Much of what seems significant to us will seem insignificant in comparison to the plan of our Savior. And probably on the other side of that, what seems insignificant to us may have been very significant to his work. That kind of further indicates the need to be faithful, not just in the big things, but the small things. One day, we will stand before Christ, no longer ignorant, but we will see Christ as he is, We will have full understanding of him and his plan, seeing how his faithfulness has played out in our lives and through our lives. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. We shall then discern with wonder and amazement the full meaning of many a thing in which we were unconscious agents during our lives. Simply because of who he is, Jesus elicits a number of responses. We've now seen two, a response of inference and a response of ignorance. I want you to note, third, a response of indifference. A response of indifference. There seems to be two groups coming to Jesus at this time. The first one we saw in verse 12, those who had already come to Jerusalem for the Passover. But now in verses 17 and 18, they seem to identify another group. These are the ones who seem to specifically seek out Jesus because of what he has done, because of his miracles. The text reads, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. The miracle of Lazarus' resurrection has now been told throughout the land. In terms of today, we might call that going viral. I mean that in the social media type, not the disease type. (laughs) Details are being told everywhere. And it's generating a reaction from people. Among the chief priests and the scribes, it, it brings concern to the point that they actually plan to kill Lazarus in the preceding verses of our text, in John chapter 12. But for the crowds, it draws them to Jesus. The problem is that they are more interested in what Jesus can do for them, rather than who he is. They are, in one sense, similar to the Jews in verse 12, in that they have considered Jesus, possibly as a man of God, maybe even sent by God, (coughs) but they respond in a similar way, worshiping Christ not because of who he is, but because of who they want him to be. Unfortunately, when Jesus fails to give them what they want, they also turn against him, and it happens just a few verses later. John twelve thirty seven though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It was never enough. Despite all that Christ had done, they still reject him. What's being described in verses 17 and 18 is, is serious. Probably more serious than we realize just by reading these verses. But the sin of this particular group, it is the same sin that results in Christ's pronouncement of judgment in Matthew eleven twenty 20 through 24 against the various cities of the region. After having done many miracles in their sight, those cities refused to repent. And Jesus begins to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Text says, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That's a harsh critique. Says, but I will tell you that it will be more tolerable on this day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The problem is they are more in love with the gift than the giver. As believers, we are recipients of the great benefits and the great blessings from Christ. Blessings and benefits that should be enjoyed, that should bring pleasure to us. But they are pleasurable because they point us and bring us back to Christ. Christ back to the very one who bestowed those blessings and bestowed those, uh, excuse me, those benefits on us. The crowds of verses 17 and 18, despite having seen Christ in part so much through miracles and signs, they still remain indifferent to who Christ is. And the result is they love the gift more than they love the giver. This is a response of indifference. I want you to note, finally, a response of indignance. For those of you who keep track, I alliterated both the first letter of the word and the ending, just for your sake. (laughs) A response of indignance in his entrance into the city Matthew twenty-one fifteen says, but when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. What we see now in the last verse of our text of John chapter 12 is just an extension of that indignance. Look at how they respond now. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The exclamation that the world has gone after Jesus seems like a slight exaggeration, but it's actually quite prophetic. That was always the Lord's intention. 1 John 2.2, two describes Christ's work and says he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world that then enables Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven, to be the reality where David writes, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. This is God fulfilling his plan. The problem for the Pharisees is that this becomes a threat to their authority. If the people start following Jesus, they will no longer follow the Pharisees they are more concerned about their own authority than their creator's authority. Of all the responses, this one seems to be the scariest of all. With a response of inference, there is at least a possibility of correcting those expectations through teaching. With a response of ignorance, the disciples at least worshipped Christ as the son of the living God, even if it was an incomplete response because of incomplete knowledge. Besides, we know that the Lord continues his work and that as knowledge grows, he continues to draw people closer. With a response of indifference, there is a hopeful possibility of capturing hearts and attention. In each of these, there is hope for salvation, if there's not already salvation there. But with a response of indignance like the Pharisees, That type of person has firmly set themselves against the Lord, endeavors to oppose Christ, and perhaps even labor against him. That's evidenced by the Pharisees' willingness to conspire in a way that they might be able to arrest and murder him later. Indignance towards Christ is a very dangerous place to be. In all cases, though, in all of these responses, It's ultimately a refusal or inability to see Christ as he is. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God, it says in Revelation 19. Then it goes on to say, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is not a king. Jesus is not a lord. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. There is none mightier. There is none more majestic. And there is none holier. He is the all-glorious creator and the all-saving redeemer. He is the worthy lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It says in Revelation 5. At his entrance into Jerusalem, there was not one who worshipped Christ as he was, but more as they expected or wanted him to be. Those celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem responded to Christ based on their own inferences, expecting Christ as a ruler of earth rather than a ruler from heaven. Even the disciples in their ignorance, though Jesus had explained it all to them, Their sin-deceived hearts failed to grasp the significance of Christ's own words. Somehow that sounds familiar. Then there were those who had heard of Christ's resurrection of Lazarus. And wanting more, they responded to Christ really in indifference, failing or neglecting to see the most significant gift was Christ. And it wasn't physical life, but spiritual life. And of course, we have the religious leaders of the day, responding in indignance, more angry about the threat to their own power rather than the spiritual well-being of those they were called to lead. Each failed to receive Christ because he failed to meet their expectations, but not because their expectations were too high. Instead, they failed to receive him because their expectations were too low. That's a trend that continues today. There is probably our greatest barrier to full surrender to Christ. It's not because Jesus is everything he promises to be. Our greatest barrier to full surrender is because we fail to see how who he is is far more marvelous than what we want him to be. It seems our expectations is not for a man to be conformed to Christ's likeness, but for Christ to be conformed to man's image. If none of these is adequate, if none of these is an adequate response to Christ, what is an appropriate response to Christ? In one sense, I don't know. John chapter six, Jesus says a right response is to believe upon the one who God has sent. That is to believe Christ. Paul stipulates that a right response to Christ is to confess him as Lord. And throughout the word we see at his birth, at his resurrection and at his return, the right response to Christ is worship. But here's where the problem comes in or where the struggle is. It has nothing to do with God's word in my own study this week and trying to determine and outline and pray through this message, it occurred to me just how inadequate I am. My knowledge, my emotions, as they exist now, as they are in this current state, are insufficient to respond to Christ. Nothing I do would match his worthiness. And so my fear becomes that my affections, as they are now, are not adequate enough to value Christ as I ought to value him. My fear is that they are not sufficient enough to love Christ as I ought to love him. And my fear is that they are not acceptable enough to receive Christ as I ought to receive him. To receive Christ now as the man that I am, it would be a pitiful and woeful response to who Christ is. I don't want a pitiful, woeful response to Christ. None of us should want a pitiful, woeful response to Christ. So what do we do? And our, our only hope is this, and please hear me out. If at any point in the message you shouldn't let your mind wander, don't let it wander until you understand this. As Jesus prays that last time in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his arrest, his final words are, I, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I was listening to an interview of John Piper the other day and he pointed out something while looking at First John two two. It reads, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So one day we will see Christ as he is, and we will be transformed into his image putting that together with the idea that we've been filled with the love of God, that same love with which God the Father loves God the Son. My only hope is this, that upon seeing Christ, that I will be transformed and then enabled to love Christ as God loves Christ, at least as much as is possible. I don't want to respond the way we see these others respond. There are many grand entrances into history. But the grand entrance of Jesus, at this one at least, should have been a high point of human history, and yet it's become a low point. It is here that Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the people declare him king of Israel. It was a coronation, but not a typical coronation. His title, placed on a sign above his head, was Jesus, king of the Jews. His scepter was a, a whip of leather embedded with ends of metal. His robe, though it was made of purple, was stained crimson with his blood. His crown made of thorns and his throne a cross. I think the pursuit of a right response to Christ begins with the question, do we worship the Christ we want? Or do we worship the Christ we need? Let's pray.